I mean, I know some of your stories and want to start with, you know, where you started in your life and how you how you came to be caring about the things you care about and doing the things you do. And so, sorry. Yeah, that, that's okay. That's one. In fact, yeah, but you really touched into the reason for my question besides just pure interest. I remember, I want to just say, to say to you, uh, Krista, if we're going to have seven minutes out of this, is it going to take us 90 minutes to do it? No, no, no. We're going to have an hour of radio. Okay. All right. Okay. That's, and, what I, that's fine. Then. Yeah. No, so no. We, so we get a chance to do some talking. We get to have a real conversation. Super. It's, and it's, okay. an, it's not live, so it also doesn't yeah. have to be seamless. It gets yeah. to be a real conversation. And sure. um, I'm going to let you ramble on if you feel like it. And okay. <laughs> no, I understand. Okay. No, I, I don't do a lot of rambling. That's that's the point. You know. Well, I'm, what I mean by that yeah. is nobody has to speak in sound bites here. No, People I, get no, to I have lengthy answers. Yeah. And we can explore. Yes, and, we can and, explore. And, yeah, perfect. Yeah. And I know that's what you do. So yeah. I think you're also probably pretty skilled at sound bites these days, too, though. So I <laughs> well, want you to get out of that yeah. mode. <laughs> well, I tell you, I learned to lead up front. <laughs> no, I know. I, I've been on television a couple of times myself that's and realized right. and I have to learn later. that. Yeah. Yes. Well, radio is so, such a wonderfully different medium as yes. a result. Yes. Yeah, I mean, you really do. Good talk radio is the best thing we have in this country. Mm-hmm. And we don't have it on television. And, we, you know, on public radio, we get to talk about oh, real things. Oh, tell me about it. So, it's fantastic. Yeah. Um, Mitch, I'm, oh, we, my, uh, my producer wants to make sure that they're recording on your end. Yeah. Yeah, Dan is recording. Dan, should I be closer to this mic? Uh, here closer. Oh, sure. Okay, I can do that. I can do that. Not a problem. Yeah. Yeah, oh yeah, he's he's a good engineer, and he, and he dogs every minute of this. Okay. <laughs> well, I think we can plunge okay. in if you're ready at that end. Yeah, and, I am. Um, I I want to, I want to hear. Uh, I want to, you to tell me about your early religious life. Um, I know that you refer to your upbringing in a mixed marriage, but yes. but you know when you use that phrase, meaning what what it meant when yeah. you were a child, it's, it's, it's quite foreign. So, I mean, you know, tell the story and, oh, and what that was like then. Got it. Yeah, I, that's great. Okay. Well, I, I, I'm a strange product of what should not have been a religious upbringing in the traditional use of the term when I was growing up. And by strange product, I mean at, at, at that period in history, if people were marrying across religious boundaries, it was almost assumed that religion was not a major factor in that home, or if mm. it were, it would be a problem. In my case, there was a certain amount of that that was also true. It was anything but idyllic in the theological sense, meaning my mother and my father had been raised very, very differently themselves. Um, My biological father had been Catholic, uh, but died when I was three. And my mother married a Protestant by the name of Dutch Chittister, Hmm. who was a very good man, a fine man who came from a fine family. But uh, none of us, no religion at that time, had a monopoly on... um, uh, on intolerance. Okay. So uh, Catholics um, had been taught to fear Protestants, and Protestants had been taught to suspect Catholics mm-hmm. because Catholics uh, uh, were icons of everything bad that had happened to the Protestant community for 400 years. 
Now, into that historical framework, this Irish Catholic young woman and this Presbyterian man marry despite all warnings or models to the contrary. In that, in that home, I was raised Catholic. After mm-hmm. all, uh, my father understood that my own biological father had been Catholic. It was the natural thing. I was Catholic. At the same time, I was growing in a family that uh, did not have, were not single-minded about religion at all. In fact, had very, very different approaches to the whole subject of religious life, the churches, the spiritual life. My mother was a very sacramental person, as Catholics are. Uh, The Eucharist meant a great deal. The other sacraments were to be celebrated as you went through life. My father, on the other hand, I can remember, had had a Bible, a tiny Bible, that he, he had received as a youngster himself for perfect attendance at Sunday school. Now, to be quite frank, I don't think he ever darkened the doorstep of a church after he left Sunday school, but he treasured that little Bible. And as I got older, I began to realize that that Bible was the icon of the Protestant spiritual tradition before Catholics rediscovered the Bible after right. Vatican II. And, and it, but it wasn't the icon for your, for your pre-Vatican II Catholic upbringing, Absolutely it? not. Mm-hmm. It, my, you know, uh, we were a devotion and sacramental people. Yeah. But when I look back, I, I realize that whatever anybody from the outside looking in would think I learned two wonderful and distinct things from these people. From my mother's Catholic upbringing, I learned that all life is sacred. All things are sacramentals, meaning revealing the presence of God. But from my father, I learned that there was a word under the word. There was the word of Scripture that was the foundation for any word of the church— And from him, I learned this unerring and just intractable, implacable commitment to truth. Mm -hmm. He just kept telling me that the one thing that mattered in life is I had to tell the truth. Mm -hmm. I had to be truthful. Now, when I look back now, I say to myself, can you ask for a better religious upbringing than to be aware always in your life of the presence of the Word of God, to recognize that you practice that Word, you celebrate that Word, you see all life as a demonstration of that Word, and that you see that as a single truth. At the end of a formation like that, Krista, you you don't exclude people. Hmm. Everybody comes in under your tent, Everybody belongs there. But I think that as a child, um, there must have been a lot of tension and dissonance because um, you would have been learning growing up Roman Catholic, as you would have learned in the other direction if you'd been raised Presbyterian, that the tradition of your father was wrong, right? That he was excluded from Catholic sacraments. Uh-huh. You think there was an underlying tension and dissonance, Krista? Uh, we lived in that tension and dissonance 
18 hours a day, mm-hmm. and probably I most of all because I was the child mm-hmm. in the mix. And you were in a Catholic school? And I was in a Catholic school. Every single year when you filled out your little registration card and took it up to sister, the new sister always thought that there had to be – I must have made a mistake on my, <laughs> on my registration card because it said my father was Protestant. <laughs> I was the only kid in the class mm. with a Protestant father. Uh, that made me an anomaly to begin with. It was terribly embarrassing. Secondly, when my parents had the kind of interpersonal tensions that any couple has, I I knew that we had come to the living end when they began to talk about religion. It was like uh, rerunning the wars of religion in your own home. The 30 Years' War? The 30, all of them, mm-hmm. every one of them. Okay. The, the mixed marriage was exactly what it said. Not just the mixture of a Protestant and a Catholic, but this mixture of ideology, this mixture of the way you looked at the world, and worst of all, a mixture of the way your own church looked at you. Okay. Did they allow it? Yes. Did they encourage it? No. Uh, Did they support it? Barely. And uh, did they, in a sense, create the environment which made it difficult? Yes. If anything, I realized in those two people, in that microcosm and that mix, that holiness, like God, has many faces and speaks in many languages— And I find myself naturally, naturally open to the way God works everywhere with every people in the world. And Krista, I wouldn't give that up for anything. Mm. I would take that spiritual religious formation again before I would take any other. You know, you told me a story when we spoke that time, which I think was probably a decade ago. And I want you to tell it again because I never forgot it. And I, I... I've read a lot of what you've written. I haven't read all of it, but I haven't found this story anywhere, which is about a day, I think it was in second grade, when you learned that your father would go to hell because You're right. he was Presbyterian. Tell that story. Well, I, yes, and I can tell you that story is in uh, one of my books called In Search of Belief. Okay. Um, I was in second grade, as, as, as you said quite correctly, amazing memory. <laughs> and um, that day... Uh, somehow or other, in in religion class, sister taught that Protestants don't go to heaven. I can remember when I retell that story, the terrible shock that went through my system. I mean, I was seven and a half or eight years old, and I knew we were in trouble. Uh, I, I was also very, very worried about the information. Why? Because there was a custom in my house. I was an only child. And uh, my father and I w- would commonly get home at about the same time, he from the shop and I from school. And when we walked into the house, the minute we got in the house and the hellos were over, one of them would say, would turn to me and say, and Joan, what did you learn in school today? Well, that's the day I learned the blockbuster stuff, that none of my Chittister relatives were going to heaven. I decided right off the bat 
that I had to do something to put a monkey wrench in that question. So I didn't stay that night. I didn't, I didn't clean the board. I didn't uh, uh, take out the, the um, uh, waste can. I didn't stay to talk to sister. I shot out of that school as fast as my little legs would carry me. I took a shortcut home. I went screeching into the house. My mother was in the kitchen uh, standing at the sink uh, washing dishes, and uh, she said to me, well, you're home early and all excited. What happened? I didn't say anything. She said, well, honey, what did you learn in school today? What happened in school today? And I looked at her and I said, today I learned that Protestants don't go to heaven. Now, the reason, you see, I, want, I didn't want my father in the room when that question was asked. To my mother, I could say it honestly. She said, is that right? And what do you think about that, Joan? And I remember looking at her hard and thinking for a second, and I said, I I think that's wrong. And she said, you do. You think that's wrong. And I said, yes, I think that's wrong. She said, well, if it's wrong, why do you think sister would say it? By this time, she was taking her hands out of the soapy water and rubbing them on her apron and looking at me very intensely, and I knew that we were in a real personal conversation. (laughs) And I loved Sister. Sister could not be wrong. She knew everything. So my mother had put me right in the center of the religious dilemma at the age of eight. Well, if uh, why do you think Sister said that then? And I said... Because sister doesn't know daddy. And I can remember her, Krista, taking a step toward me, and she put her arms around me. She she pulled me toward her. I can still feel, you know, I can honestly feel that apron and the hardness of her stomach. And she she gave me a hug, and she ran her fingers through my hair, and she said to me, You're a very smart little girl. I'm proud of you. Did you say, what did you say to sister? And I I was ashamed. I pressed my head against her stomach and I looked down and I said, I didn't say anything. And she said, that's fine, dear. That was the right thing to say today. You can tell sister later. I've never been able, I was never able to forget that. That there would come a time in your life, you see, where where this spiritual awareness and truth would would somehow or other uh, become integrated, that you would say your truth and it would be spiritual truth and that you couldn't say other. How could Sister say this? Because Sister didn't know Daddy. If she had had all the data, I figured, maybe she had never seen a Protestant. Right. Maybe she had never known a Protestant. Clearly, she didn't have a Daddy who was a Protestant. But if she had of, sister was good, and she would have adjusted her thinking. And my father was good, so I had to adjust my thinking. And I was eight. It was a great gift. It was a wonderful gift to grow up with. I I had a real hard time uh, forming prejudices as a result. Tell me about becoming a nun. How old were you, and and what, what led you along that path? Well, I was 16 when I entered the monastery, which seems atrocious (laughs) when you you ask and answer the question now. But there's something to think about. You know, uh, before uh, 
before, during, and after World War II, the most common question that you could ask a young person is, what are you going to do when you grow up? (laughs) And you were supposed to have an answer, and you were expected to do it. For instance, you went into ninth grade, and they said, did you want a business course, an academic course, uh, or a general course? If you didn't say academic, you you didn't have a chance. You couldn't get into college. In other words, at the age of 14, you had already made your decision for what you were going to do at 18 or 19. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So uh, 16 seems like an atrocious figure now. But it was actually not a terribly uncommon figure for for young people to make life decisions at that time. It wasn't uncommon, for instance, to get married at 17, certainly at 18, right out of high school right. and married. Right. So, uh, yes, I... I um, I precipitated that or anticipated that by two years, but that wasn't a major uh, gap at that time. On the other hand, if you ask the question, where did this begin? (laughs) The the interesting, the truth of it is it began when I was three. (laughs) When my father died, my mother took me to the funeral home against all the advice of all of her family who said that, quote, the baby should not should not be put in a situation like that. And my young 21-year-old widowed mother said, and what is she supposed to think? Her father died. She has to understand that just the way the rest of us do. Uh, Is she supposed to think that he just left one day and never came back? So she took me to the funeral home, and I can. She picked me up at the casket, uh, held me in her arms. I remember over, over, over my father's body. I remember thinking that he was on a shelf, on the wall, mm. and uh, I had my my little arms around her face. I I could feel the tears on her cheek, and when I turned to look at her, uh, I looked down the casket, and here. <laughs> Here were three of the strangest-looking creatures I had ever seen in my life. I learned later they were Sisters of Mercy in the old habit, in the the big linen headgear and the veil and the big sleeves and the... Uh, the cincture around the waist and and all the the pleats and uh, wool and everything that went with it. They were sitting at the end of the casket, and I said to my mother, what are those? <laughs> Not who are they. <laughs> what is that thing? And my mother said to me, those, Joan, are special friends of God's and special friends of Daddy's. Hmm. And when the angels come, to get your daddy, the sisters will stay here. And they'll say to the angels, this is Joan's daddy, and he was a wonderful daddy and a wonderful man, and you should take him straight to God. Mm. Now, I remember saying to myself, thinking to myself, that would be a wonderful thing to do (laughs) in life. You could give other little girls' daddies to God. So I spent the rest of my life crossing streets so I could say hello to nuns, and uh, and just simply. And you could following recognize them, them back in those days. Pardon me. You could always recognize them. You could back recognize in those them, days. and and you could spot them coming in yes. ten miles, and you could plant yourself in front of them yeah. so you could say good morning, sister. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
you so know, I, I can't yeah. explain that. I can only tell you that for somehow or other at that early age, that seed was planted. I went to a Catholic school, had wonderful sisters, and had none of the, the horror stories that some people have told, loved every minute of it. It was a very natural progression for me. You know, some of the women I most admire in the world are are monastic, and um, recently I spent some time with, um, you know, I, I know the Benedictines up in St. Joseph, and right. um, and recently I spent some time with some Adrian Dominicans in yes. Siena Heights, Michigan. Yes. And I was with some, some of the sisters from that community who were probably about your age, and uh, such intellectual, sophisticated, oh, yes. Yes. Uh, wise, uh-huh. you know, powerful women. Yeah. And something... That I that I that I remembered is that I think, and and um, that maybe I'm maybe I'm just leaping to something here, but it struck me that um, and ha- you've been a you've been a religious for what fifty years is that right fifty two years 50, so that fifty years ago, for a, that that becoming um, that entering this religious life was a very kind of powerful and radical move for a woman, a liberating move in yes. a way that is counterintuitive for us now. When women, I mean, when I suppose the other path that was laid out before you is that you would marry and that your life would be That's defined right. very much by a man and a family. That's and right. this was a completely different way to be. And these women have lived that way and you've lived that way. Yes. I think it's worth remembering that because our culture has changed so much. Well, it's it's a wonderful life. Yeah. Uh, I'll say some you, more about that because I well, don't think that that's you know automatically something that modern people would infer. Oh, yeah, yeah, not to infer that is to miss the whole meaning. It's a wonderful life. It's uh, it's a happy life. Uh, it's a productive life. It's a meaningful life, and it's a deeply spiritual life. I mean, you immerse yourself in in the spirit of god in the scriptures uh in in the great tradition in the values in the simple things uh about which life uh really um exists it's not about money i mean we we take uh, uh vows um uh, of of poverty, for instance, there's nothing. There's not. You know, the whole world is coming to understand that there's nothing wrong with our attitude toward that. Things okay. aren't going to do it for you. Yeah, uh, you can have millions and millions and be miserable and have no sense of meaning in the world at all. Uh, we take vows to listen to. Uh, to obey the word of God in our life, to understand that there's something other than ourselves that that should be dictating what I do with our lives, and we take life, we take vows of of stability, of relationships. Of uh, I'm an eerie Benedictine. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we grow here. You know that that uh, poster that went around a couple years ago. Bloom where you're planted. Whatever happens to Erie happens to us. Uh, we don't just pick up and find uh, a better place on Wall Street next week. We stay with these people, raise these people, worry about these neighborhoods. So, and, and the whole notion of of um, shaping your life consciously, knowing the values that you're about is itself extremely liberating. Mm-hmm. Being a woman religious is still a phenomenally liberating moment for a woman. Why? Because she comes into the fullness of herself and spends her life concentrating on the fullness of herself, but not for her own purpose alone, but to bring to the world 
the best that is in her. So we do. We educate our women uh, very well. We support them in their gifts, in their arts, in their music. In my case, in my writing, uh, we're not we're not setting out to suppress or control or or squelch people. We're saying, <laughs> in a way that the army never thought of, be all that you can be, because the world needs you. Well, I also want to point out that, at, like the army, you see the world. Right? I mean, you, you can you can go ever, go where you want to go. I mean, you can say that you are planted in Erie, and I believe you. I also know that you're one of the freest spirits um, I've ever encountered. Like many monastics, you are a world traveler. And yes. I first met you about a decade ago, and I remember that not for radio. I was interviewing you for another kind of project, and I remember that the only time I could get on your schedule was at an airport where you had a three-hour layover. Chili's, Krista. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And you arrived, and I wrote in my notebook, a whirlwind in purple, uh, not yeah. looking anything like one of those nuns from picture books 50 years ago. And and at the end of our conversation, I felt that an airplane was airport was exactly the right place to meet you. Because it was a you lovely are icon, on wasn't the it? Move. <laughs> yes. So talk to me about, you know, on the one hand, as a... As a monastic, it is a contemplative life. Um, yes, but your life is is also very much a life of action. Is is there a tension in that, or how do those two things work together? It's a natural and a necessary tension. I think that if we look through. Uh, um, the history of spirituality, for instance, we would find that some of our most contemplative people have been our most active. <laughs> uh, Thomas Merton, for instance. Mm-hmm. And some of our most active people have been our most contemplative, like Ignatius of Loyola or uh, Teresa of Avila. Mm-hmm. The two go together unless they are narcissistically being cultivated for their own sake only. Even monastics who do not, are not in a position, like I and some others are, to travel so much, they leave their houses open. They are, they are continually making themselves available to the needs of others, taking people in, if only for retreats themselves, but always, always uh, saying that this space doesn't just belong to me, It is mine for the sake of other people. So actually, our action always comes out of the contemplative message or or meaning of our lives. They aren't separated. So not not to have it. You can't hear the cry of the poor in prayer five times a day and not somehow or other become sensitized to the needs of the poor and therefore to respond the best you and your community can. Mm-hmm. Right now, we're at, a, we're at another point in, in the development of the world. In some ways, the Europeans have known it uh, 200 years before us. In Europe, it's almost impossible to travel 250 miles without finding yourself in somebody else's country. So Europeans have always been national, international travelers. In the United States, we've lived on a very, very large ice cube that's melting now. (laughs) The world is coming in. The boundaries are going down. What we're about now is the unification of the world, the connection of one people with another people, 
Now, that means that the whole world is not going to come to us. We have to be prepared to walk with the rest of the world on the path it knows for our own contemplative development. So in my, in my own life, I, I don't see them as separate. If I weren't immersed in my community, uh, I couldn't do it. I wouldn't have the physical energy, nor would I have a reason to do it. Okay. So that continual immersion in prayer, that, that, that cycle of, of uh, liturgical uh, development in all of us, as well as the attention to this community of strangers that is, that is simply a model of the rest of the world for any, any member of a religious community. We, we simply set out to do outside what we do inside. Hmm. We live with strangers. Hmm. We say everybody is welcome here. We say, yes, come. So when, when, when I find myself, as I will next week, for instance, in Taiwan, it won't feel any different to me than Erie does. Okay. Well, and, and I also think as I, as I hear you talk about the world we're all living in, the melting ice cube, I also think as a Benedictine, as a member of this worldwide order, you, you, have, you have that kind of ancient sense of being connected and being global, don't you? Oh, absolutely. And remember that, that Benedictine communities have, have a, they're, they're a free and wonderful group to begin with. <laughs> they're not huge institutions. So many of us are so small. And we you mean may the live... Communi- Benedictine communities. Pardon me? <clears throat> Bened- oh, sorry. <clears throat> Benedictine communities are, are small. Oh, they're, they're, they're primarily small. Mm-hmm. Yes, we, uh, w- because we don't have major international centers. All of our communities are autonomous. We, we are who we are, where we are. So that means that somehow or other we have to keep in contact with all the other groups in order not to become so parochial that we lose our world vision. Mm -hmm. But the opposite side of that is that every community then has its own special cultural national character. So just going to another Benedictine community around the world will immerse you in global culture. Because Benedictines, Benedictines live under a common rule, but they are not stereotyped in the way they live that rule. Talk to me about the rule of Benedict. You live under a rule. As we've been describing, you're a very free and powerful human being. What does it mean for you to live by that rule of Benedict? Well, you have to begin by realizing that what the word rule means to a contemporary American in the year 2006 is not necessarily completely or only what the word means in a document that was written in Europe in the 6th century. Rule, regla, meant um, guide, guideline. It was like uh, talking about um, using a railing, going up or down hmm. a set of stairs. Hmm. It was there to help you. Something to lean on. That's right. It's <laughs> Something to get you it's, there. <laughs> it's the way you get to where you're huh. going. It, will, it is always the bellwether of your priority of values. When you're, when you're faced with two goods, 
choose the one that is most common to the rule. It's easy to choose good from evil. It's so obvious. It's when you're choosing good from good hmm. that you can get confused. So if you look at Benedictine values, if you realize that they are uh, community and work and stewardship um, and prayer um, and, 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 you, and hospitality, taking, taking the other in always and order and fairness – um, we, I heard an old monk say once, you know, the lovely thing about the Benedictine rule is that mediocrity is built right into it. We, we, we're not, we're not, we do not see ourselves as conforming to a single pattern of behavior. Or setting an ideal. That's right. Mm-hmm. It is an ideal, and it has something to do with, with living a, 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 a lifestyle we're not a work. We're not an institution. Mm-hmm. We're a lifestyle. We live together. Uh, we have good order and good administration. Our administrators are called to always to recognize our differences and to support us in our differences. Mm-hmm. The rule never asks for any kind of rigid conformity. The rule says, here are the scriptures, live in them. Here are your brothers and sisters. Live with them. Love them all. Bring them all to life. Here's the world around the monastery. Take it in. Hmm. Here, uh, Do your own work. Support yourself. Don't expect anybody else um, uh, to, to uh, support uh, this monastery. The rule says we earn our bread by the sweat of our brow, just as, our, uh, as the ancients before us. So it's a hardworking, simple group of people who are living, modeling what it is to be part of the world, to take care of the stranger, um, to grow together. You live in community because it's only community that really shows us who we are, who we are. What irritates you? What bothers you? What don't you want to do? Uh, Those are exactly the things that you need to work on today. I wonder how the vow, the virtue of obedience, the meaning of that has changed for you in this half century as a religious and as you move through the end of the 20th century and into the 21st century. Well, it has changed, and there's no question about that. Uh, When I entered the community, obedience was more a military virtue than a Christian virtue. Okay. And there was, at that time, a tremendous emphasis on conformity. Um, Why, if it really wasn't built into the rule? Because, as a matter of fact, uh, that's that's, uh, the life that had been developed as a result of, uh, for instance, the Industrial Age. Uh, we learned post, how after World War Two. Well, and before World War Two, okay. when you begin the the period of industrialization, mm-hmm. and you come to understand assembly lines, when you depersonalize the human being for the sake of the product, you know. And you're saying uh, even those cultural values had sort of infiltrated of course, orders, okay. because they had become. Uh, they had become the ideals of the time. Mm-hmm. Of institutions know. in general. Or, yes, mm-hmm. institutions in general mm-hmm. made people interchangeable parts. Huh. You know, uh, on the, in the assembly line mentality, 
the person uh, who um, who uh, nails heels to shoes is easily replaced, hmm. but the cobbler is not easily replaced. So this this notion of of the individual as the sacrament of God, as the person who was being called to fullness, had really been drained out of most of of society by that time. The whole notion of the artisan that had come out of the Middle Ages, for instance, was lost. We knew now how to make pots. We had forgotten what pottery was. (laughs) So uh, that whole notion of the military meaning of obedience had, whether we realized it or not, begun to consume us. And worse than that, we were women. Hmm. And women were expected to conform to somebody else's rule book. So in many cases, you'll find that, that the men who had the educations, when they, when they discovered this, this band of uh, a very spiritually committed woman, they wrote rule books for the women. <laughs> And the women began to keep them. So it's not until after World War II when education itself became as much a priority, well, if not as much a priority in the 50s, which would be an exaggeration, but became as possible, at least in some ways, for women as for men. And then then became as important uh, for women as for men as it is now that you begin to see this shift from military conformity to an, a sensitivity to the impulses of grace in our lives. Yeah. The word obedience come from, comes from the Latin word obedire, to listen. And the first word of the rule of Benedict is listen, my children, to the precepts of your teacher. Listen to them. Learn from them, not not jump how high. Okay, listen and learn. There is there is of course you know the wisdom of the ages. When you live in a community like ours, we may be the only institution left in the Western world where uh, three or four generations of people are living together under the same roof, where you right. are always living <laughs> right. with your grandmother and your great grandmother. Right. And and that that permeates a group, and it's not just it's not just it's it's more than an extended family. It is also with friends and and also with people who you find difficult to live with, right? Of course, I mean, it's a collection of human beings. Yes, <laughs> like any collection of human. That's beings. That's right. That's exactly right. It's any collection of human beings. They are not they are not bound together by blood ties. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not there for any uh, uh, romantic reason or involvement. They are all there seeking the same thing together. To seek God is the foundation of Benedictine life. Why do you go to a Benedictine monastery? To seek God. Not necessarily to teach, not necessarily to preach, not, not necessarily uh, to, excuse me, um, plant a garden or to to give retreats, Mm -hmm. you simply go to this way of life to seek God. (coughs) Excuse me. That's okay. Take take a drink if you need. Yeah, thanks. Okay. Anytime you need to stop. Got it. Okay. okay. Let me ask you this. Um, 
I wonder if you'd talk about some of the concrete ways in which, as you say, this this move from obedience, which is about conformity, to obedience, which is about being sensitive to and responsive to grace. Oh, that's easy. Um, <laughs> talk, give me some concrete examples I will indeed. of how you are different as a person of faith, as a Catholic, as a as a religious, as a woman religious. Now, as opposed to yeah. the 50s, what sure. That, what that has meant um, specifically in your life and your theology. Oh, it's, it's been terribly important. For instance, um, I entered at 16. I, w- I entered because my motives were pure. I wanted to be a sister, and whatever it took to be a sister, I would do it. But believe it or not, I did not really have any great attraction to teaching whatsoever. None. Zero. Now, I knew sisters taught, and I knew that I could. But if I had, in an ideal world at that time, had all the choices available to me, um, teaching fifth and sixth grade for four years, as I did in my early religious life, would not have been my choice by a long shot. Uh, In those days, however, the superior decided what you would do. Someday in August, um, a, a, a note went up on the bulletin board. The name of every sister in the community was on that list, and it told you you had uh, uh, that you would go to such and such a place this following year in September and do such and such a thing. Nobody had a conversation with you about it. Nobody asked you if you were prepared. Nobody asked you if you felt inclined to do that. Nobody asked you if you wanted to try to do that. You simply packed your suitcase and went. The, the change that occurs... When we, like the rest of the world, remember, we are not an entity unto ourselves. Um, we, are, we are the people of our own time and culture. As the years went by and Vatican II came with it, we discovered that the individual is a precious resource hmm. and that simply cookie-cutter people is, is not the goal of our life, that that doesn't make you holy. Or holier, hmm. to be other than you can be is no sign of, of great spiritual valor. So as we discovered this, this um, synthesis of the gifts in the individual and the needs of the times, as well as the nature of the community, we discovered that we were a more active, more effective, certainly happier and and freer group if we were following the gifts of the members. And what did the, that mean for you personally? Where, oh, well, where, for where me, did you find yourself drawn or where have you found yourself drawn that you would never have anticipated at 16 or even at 26? Well, let me let me put it the other way. Let me tell you what I gave up. Okay. Because at 14 I knew where I was drawn. I knew at the age of 14 I was a writer. Mm. That that's all I wanted to do in mm. life. It was every single thing that meant something to me, and nothing else even began to approach it. But I wanted to be a sister, right? I wanted to enter the Benedictines. I remember standing in front of the statue of Mary and praying my heart out the month before I was supposed to 
to enter. I was full of anguish because I knew that sisters didn't write. There was no way. I had never seen a book by a sister. Um, I can remember praying in my heart, all right, I'll go, but you have to make it work. So I entered. And sure enough, I went the way the whole system went. Uh, First, I taught in grade school, double grades for four years. Then I was moved to high school. Then, suddenly, I was elected as um, president of our federation. And in order to be president, the only way I knew to work with the groups was to communicate with each group. And out of that suddenly emerged that old reality that was myself. And little by little, that writer clawed her way through the soul up to the bright air of day. Hmm. Now, I had put that down a long time ago. It had never, ever occurred to me that I would ever be allowed to write anything. And then suddenly, not only had it happened, people liked it, Hmm. wanted more. (laughs) My own community encouraged me in it. Uh, When I was actually, if not shy about it, certainly uncertain of it, uh, it was the sisters behind me saying, you have to do this, you have to do this, this is who you are, you have to do this. And suddenly, I discovered that by listening to myself, by listening to the people around me, I had found who I was again. Hmm. So it isn't, in an interesting way in my case, it isn't that suddenly I saw something that I had never thought of before and wanted to try. What I found was what had always been in me and was now able, not only able to be released, but really being confirmed as the road I was supposed to be on. And you are very well known um, as a woman speaking about women, about feminism, um, within the church and outside the church. I wonder if you'd talk to me about how that came to be a part of your passion, you know, and what does it mean? And I think there are probably people out there who might um, find th- this, this, this description to be... To be uh, a contradiction in terms, to be a Roman Catholic feminist religious. (laughs) Well, in the first place, feminism, as far as I'm concerned, is a very holy thing. Now, feminism is not monolithic either. When did you start to think about feminism? Well, the funny thing is, Krista, I'm... (laughs) I'm, I'm one of these people who probably backed into it. I was probably a feminist, like I think most women are, actually, uh, without knowing it. Uh, I, I never fooled around with the word. I was one of these people who said, well, I'm not a feminist, but I do believe that women should be paid exactly the same thing a man would be paid for the same work. I'm not a feminist, but I don't understand uh, why, why husbands and wives aren't both raising small children. Who said that a husband can't change a diaper? I'm not a feminist, but uh, why do we talk in church only about the men and the sons and the boys? I mean, what about the rest of us? We're here. And then one day I came across a quatrain that went something like this. Mama, what's a feminist? A feminist, my daughter, is anyone who thinks or dares to take in charge her own affairs when men 
when men don't say they otter. And that was a, a quatrain by, by Alice Duane Miller in 1928. And I knew immediately that I qualified. Mm -hmm. Mama, what's a feminist? A Mm -hmm. feminist, my daughter, is anyone who thinks or dares to take in charge her own affairs when men say, uh, don't say they oughta. Mm -hmm. And and, uh, it suddenly became very clear to me that, that feminism was not about femaleness, that the feminist philosophers had been talking to us about the fullness of all humanity, about about the world being a better place if we were using all the gifts of the human race instead of just half of them, Hmm. and that the world would be a fuller experience for all of us if we realized that half the agendas of the human race are being left out of every discussion. For instance, let me give you a very... Very current example. Okay. I was watching television uh, in a hotel room before uh, the conference was about to begin within the last six or eight months. And I was on my way out the door with my briefcase in hand, and I suddenly realized that the clip on the, on the TV at that moment showed uh, two small boys. I suppose one boy was about eight or nine and the other one 11 or 12, and they were standing outside of a bullet-parked home and a torn-up, bombed street in a rock. And they were waving their hands and screaming for help. And the soldiers were pushing them back into the house, back into the house. You could see, as the doorway opened, the woman standing there in the head veil, uh, frightened and kind of shivering in the corner. And the children were yelling, the translator said, Water, water, we have no water. We need water. We have no milk for the baby. We have nothing. My mother says we have to get milk. And the soldiers were saying, you get in this house and you stay in this house until we tell you you can come out. I stepped back in front of that television set and I looked at that screen and I said to myself, can anyone convince me that if six women and six men had been at the table that planned that raid, when the general said, now what will we need when we go into this city, can you convince me that no woman would have said there, uh, we're going to have to take uh, a lot of water. There are going to be people and children trapped in those houses. After we bring up the oil and the gas, we're going to have to have semis full of water and milk. We have no idea how many children will be there. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. And when, it yeah. when they go to the so-called uh, peace negotiations mm-hmm. after a war, they don't even count the number of women who were raped. They, they, don't, even, right. they don't even bother right. to, to check mm-hmm. the number of, of houses also. that have been destroyed. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, and I think also what I, what I think you're saying, what I've, what I've understood from reading you is not, 
that women are superior, but that women bring other questions and perspectives. Oh, no. This is to the not table. a case of <laughs> no. I mean, you know, because there, yeah. there's this simple argument which yeah. I don't buy as a woman that if only women ran the world, everything oh. would be wonderful because no. women can be as <laughs> yes, women oh, no, have no. their problems too. But no. but you're but I think the way you the way you framed it a moment ago that you know why not use the gifts of the other half of humanity? We as well? we we I I always say you know um, we. Um, we, we look at questions uh, with, with one half of the human brain. Uh, we make decisions with one half of the human brain. We see with one eye and we stand on one leg and our decisions show it. Hmm. We're just not bringing everything we have, all of our experiences, all of our various sensitivities and awarenesses uh, to, to focus on any single problem anywhere. And we are all the weaker for it. I mean, I, I, this is not a question of, of superiority. We cannot replace male chauvinism with female chauvinism. Mm-hmm. The scriptures will not support that. But we can remember that both Adam and Eve were responsible for the garden. Right. And somehow or other, we had better get back to that awareness mm-hmm. because uh, you, look, you, you look at the front page of your paper today, we're in a mess. Yeah. And you are part of a church which, um, which does not ordain women, where um, communion is such a central sacrament in any Catholic life and in monastic life, which can only be performed by a, a man, a priest. I know that within the Catholic Church, some consider you a hero and some probably a heretic for for speaking out about this. I mean, talk to me about how your discernment on women in your church has developed um, in your lifetime. Well, again, it all comes it all comes together. Um, I mean. In the first place, you have you have this tradition from the Greek philosophers through the Catholic theologians that defined men and women quite differently. Why would they have done that? I always say it's because we have a bad biology theologized. Hmm. Up until the 19th century, we weren't even sure as a human race that there was such a thing as the ovum. Yeah. We understood sperm. We knew it was seed, just like farmers knew that if you planted seed in a field, the corn would grow. Men had determined that the planting of the sperm in the incubator woman led to the birth of a child. That's why they always said it was his child. So in the 19th century, it becomes common knowledge. The microscope is not only invented, it is now in use. The, they discovered what they had been frightened for years might be true, that the woman was as much a life giver as the man was, that sperm was not the whole definition of life, that the ovum itself is absolutely a life-giving thing and necessary. So all of a sudden, you, you have a revolution. It's, it's like the time of Galileo. Hmm. Until Galileo reverses this whole notion that the sun revolves around the earth, that we are the, 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 the ultimate, the acme, um, the, the apogee of, of uh, God's creation. Uh, up until that time, theology 
had been supported by a science that said that was true. The earth and human beings were the center of the universe. Galileo comes in with a little glass tube and he says, look through this tube. You'll see we got to change that. Hmm. Everybody went mad. They went bonkers, not because of the science, but because of the theology. They said this has got to be heretical. This theology is incorrect. Now, however, standing out on the periphery of these great theological discussions, you have people saying, but I looked through a telescope myself. And lo, it is true. Once you begin to understand that, the way you think about yourself, the way you think about God and the universe, the way you think about human human beings and their place uh, in, in the chain of life, all begin subtly, quietly, slowly to shift. Now, after the 19th century, thing, the thinking about women very slowly, very quietly, also begins to shift. And science begins to find out things they never wanted to know. Women are not wildly, hysterically, emotional creatures who are totally out of control unless some man is there to walk them across the street. They are, as a matter of fact, quite stable human beings, quite strong physically, quite capable emotionally of dealing with a great deal of stress. Then you find out that they can add two and two. They can even figure it all out by themselves. Now, here we have, coming in, left-hand part of the stage, this thinking, producing, creating woman. And we have to deal with her differently. The old biology has failed us. This woman is not just the passive recipient of male seed. She is full human being, fullness of creation, and life maker herself, creator herself. But the, you know, the the simple argument, which I also read in, you know, got off the internet, which was a a Catholic authority writing about your ideas was, uh, you know, the idea that is put forward, not just in the Roman Catholic Church, that Jesus did not, you know, that that Jesus was a male, that Jesus' disciples were male, and uh, I'm not sure how true this is oh, to, to the history I, we're uncovering now, but that all the early church leaders were male. Yes, um, yes. I mean, that's that's the argument that's that's still kind of oh, the there's no doubt. Line. But, but they, how yes, do you but, respond to that when you're in discussions? Uh, well, Jesus was also a Jew, and I don't know any Catholic priests who are. So I'm not terribly impressed by that argument. It is, it is um, so fallacious in terms of what physical characteristics make up the requirement of ministry. Right. Having said all that, Krista, I want to add this. That very discussion, the two sides of that discussion are what, are what demand the universal um, uh, discussion of of the, of the role of women in the church. At the end of that discussion, we may all decide we want it just the way it is, for whatever reason, but not for a false reason. Uh, the very fact that you don't discuss it is the problem. Mm-hmm. It's not the answer that's the problem. Okay. Is, is that clear? It is. And I, 
I am calling for the discussion of this issue because if we don't face it as Catholics, you realize that in an, uh, the women in first grade right now are growing up with great expectations about themselves. And every institution on earth is beginning to honor those expectations except one. The only place they're going to find themselves excluded by the time they're 25 will be the church. Is, is, this, is, is this going to be a great model of, of the love of God for women? And I, I suppose that the response of, of orthodoxy or a response would be that the church, you know, sh- that sometimes the church will be, m- might be, the single institution which is not following culture, Right. Well, sure, that's then, and that's an acceptable answer. Mm-hmm. But you've got to have a better reason okay. than the one that's being given, because theology and science uh, are question marks to it. I think um, something I've always been intrigued by in Benedictines, uh, and I, I also think I'm, I'm hearing this in you that you're not saying it, but is a is a long view of time <laughs> yes. that. That progress sometimes takes hundreds of years. This is not a this is not an instinct that Americans have culturally. No. But you know, you know, you're you're extremely passionate. You're out there working on this, but but you're not. I I don't hear you being impatient in the way our culture oh. might be impatient. No. Let me let me give you two things. Okay. One, one. Um, <laughs> first thing is, the church is a human institution, and it is slow. It's also a universal institution. It takes a long time for ideas to seep to the top, uh, let alone to, to move the bottom. So you, you just realize that, that what is going on right now is simply the seeding of the question. And that, uh, you know, it, it comes down to how many snowflakes does it take to break a branch? <laughs> Uh, okay. I don't know, but I want to be there to do my part right. if I'm a snowflake. No, I'm a woman. How many women's voices will it take before we honor the woman's question? I don't know. But I, I am conscious, and therefore I am responsible. Another way in which I think your theology and your action in the world diverges from at least from some of the theology that's come from the Vatican in recent years, is that you, as I see it, have become increasingly open and embracing of the world's many religious traditions. Um, the world's many what? Religious Christ- traditions. Yes. I mean, not only do you quote the Tao Te Ching and Sufi yes. mystics in your writings, but you are involved in many global activities with spiritual leaders from from different uh, from different traditions, talk to me about about that uh, in your life, and and also what you know is there a tension in that for you in being being a, a religious, uh, you know, having no. a religious? No, no. Tell me about uh, that. Go back to where I began mm-hmm. in quote a mixed marriage, a Presbyterian and a Roman uh, Catholic. That's right. Yeah. Where I where I learned that. Uh, uh, good people went to heaven no matter what anybody in the institution said. My father was good. And then then realize that 
that openness in me, that awareness of that struggle in my own lifetime, that kind of theological exclusionism stopped in my lifetime. The institution itself uh, decried that kind of thinking and has done much to repair it and is a model now of the Christian community, not just the Catholic community. So so great things have happened there. But, but um, secondly, now, when, when you find yourself the member of, of uh, a participating member of the human race, with all of the, the global implications that that has, and as you, as you implied, in my own situation, where in the Women's Global Peace Initiative, I am a co-chair with a Hindu nun and a Buddhist nun mm-hmm. and an Orthodox Jew and an Islamic scholar and a Protestant clergywoman, right. that, that the six of us are calling people together, women together, in areas of conflict around this world to be a living sign that no religion the heart of none of the great religions really supports, endorses, or sets out to produce war or killing or death for anyone. So what what I have learned is that God works in many ways on this globe and that the scriptures of the other have have insights for me that basically confirm my own insights. They don't weaken my Christianity or my Catholicity. If anything, it tells me more clearly who I am. But it also tells me very profoundly and respectfully who these other people are. That we have, if God is one, why would it be so surprising that the six of us would would have a oneness in ourselves if we're really women religious. Mm. Here's a sentence, a question from um, one of your writings. Um, is openness... Oh, the problem of the nature of faith plagues us all our lives. Is openness to other ideas infidelity, or is it the beginning of spiritual maturity? Yes. it's a good question. Well, you see, the old institutional answer was that it's infidelity. Mm-hmm. But if you move as a person of faith, immersed in your own, the best of your own spiritual tradition, then you can only come to the other end of that sentence. It is openness to the best and to the wholeness. You see God in so many, God is not the enemy anymore. This, we don't have gods. We have God. Um, and that we are all moving toward that God within the limitations and with all of the gifts that each of these great seeking traditions gives us in our culture. Now, where all of that is going to come out, it doesn't even bother me. I just know that that the Jesus story is my story, that I walk with Jesus, that that I feel that presence that I know that path, and that that path, the path I walk, to me seems very much like the path from Galilee to Jerusalem that Jesus walked, raising women from the dead and curing lepers. Mm-hmm. I, I am convinced that, that, that where I am going uh, 
is on just just the end of the path that I started years ago. Hmm. Tell me what else you're doing these days, where your passion is. Um, I, I noticed that you were part of a gathering that did get quite a lot of attention um, of the network of spiritual progressives in right. Washington that was hosted right. in part by Michael Lerner and the right. Tikkun community. Right. Is that an, is that an important um, project for you right now? Well, I'm a co-chair with Michael Okay. of Tikkun, mm-hmm. yes. And I have done it because I believe that we have a very limited and often distorted um, image of the voice of religion in our own culture and our own time. The, uh, I think it's very important to raise the voice of, of, um, of religion that is the voice of the other eight or nine commandments. <laughs> I think we are forgetting we, uh, somebody said to me in, in another radio interview, now, Sister Joan, the interviewer said, you know, the last election was decided on, on moral values. I said, wait a minute, just hold a minute, hold it. The last election was decided on some moral values. Okay. The, the place of religion right now is to remember the rest of the moral values. And what are those and, for you? Well, one of them is is has something to do with whether or not you can take a baby to an emergency room in this hus- in this country, the richest country in the world, and have that baby treated or not. We have 10 million babies as you and I speak without health insurance in this country. We have uh, social welfare uh, programs that are being cut back. Um, uh, milk for babies is now called welfare. But tax breaks for the rich, which is uh, welfare for the rich as far as I'm concerned, that's being increased. There's something wrong. There's a morality missing there. It's called greed. It's it's called um, racism. Uh, it's called uh, classism. It's called a lot of sins that we are not facing in the national budget of the United States, let alone the party platforms of the, par- the political parties in this country. It's wrong. It's immoral. And the whole notion that private sexual morality is the, is the definition of religious life in this country is a cute ploy. It gets our minds off of the sins that are really killing the greatest number of people. I'm not saying that those are also not important values. Of course they are. They define our character as a people and our ability to to uh, live within our relationships. But there's a big difference between being pro-life and pro-birth. It's easy to get a baby born. What I want to know is once that baby is born, will you feed it and house it and educate it? Uh, All I see is that every day we reduce those figures in our national budget more and more. That's the morality and the religion that I'm talking about. And until we care about those things, we cannot on either spectrum, left or right, call ourselves a religious people, I don't think. And who tell me about the network of spiritual progressives who who's coming together under that umbrella well, to be honest with you krista we we are only now beginning to gather people, and it is amazing the number of groups that are moving toward this i I don't have a list in front of me, so i'm mm-hmm. I'm not able actually to um 
simply to read them off. But I can tell you that they are coming from every dimension of American society, including Buddhist Muslim uh, uh, leaders themselves. Mm -hmm. We have all sorts of of Christian groups, uh, numbers of Jewish groups, uh, Islamic groups, all of whom want to see our moral obligation as a people uh, really exposed and explored from one end to the other. Um, Joan, this is wonderful, as I knew it would be. I want to keep going a few minutes. Is that all okay. right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. And um, I want to stop here for a minute, let you take a drink, and I'm going to ask my producers behind the glass if they have some questions they want me to ask you. Sure. So I'm going to be... I just have to warn you that I probably only have about 10 more okay, minutes. Okay, we'll go 10 okay. minutes. All right, great. All right, go ahead. I'll be quiet for a minute while I'm listening. Okay, <laughs> ask you something about spirituality in our time. Um, sure. Uh, you used a phrase with me, which I've quoted many times, always telling people where it came from. Again, this was 10 years ago. This was before 9-11. And you yeah. said a lot of people these days are getting their religion off the shelf out of books. Now, yep. And you're part of that. You're, yep. You are an incredibly prolific author. Um, but it's just an explosive field of reading about religion and finding religion in many different ways. I'm just right. curious about your wisdom. People ask me often, what's that about? What does it mean? And what's the answer you give to that question? To what is spirituality? No, to the reading, this that this Oh, book why, is sales, it, why is this you know, happening? The, the fact that, sort of, oh, you know, sure. that the New York Times book list, yeah. it's not just the Da Vinci Code. No. It's it's five titles no, on the nonfiction right. list. So what's so that what? about? What's your answer to that question? Oh, I think that's very simple. We're at a, we're at a crossover moment in time, uh, meaning we're at a point where the we have so many new questions and uh, – but we don't have – the new answers have not emerged. They're only beginning to simmer in this stew that is humanity. The old answers don't suffice, and if they suffice, they don't satisfy. The whole question, when you look out, you know, since John Glenn took that first picture of that blue globe swirling in black space, we suddenly had all sorts of new questions about ourselves. Was there life out there? And if there is life out there, what does that mean? What the, how, how does that affect the word redemption? What are we to think about Jesus if there is life on other planets? Did they have to be, quote, saved? Was Jesus crucified on all of them? And what about this woman's question? What what if we have treated women like we treated minorities? What if it was all um, an absolute misinterpretation of the nature of humanity for lots of reasons, most of them scientific or educational? You can go down every single question in in um, in the human agenda today. What is life? Do we know anymore? Once we got Dolly, once we cloned a sheep, was the definition of life so clear, so pat, so stable anymore? We are the people in the desert. We're the people between uh, 
the questions and answers on one side and the questions without answers on the other side. People are not hearing those answers in their churches, and people know intuitively that sometimes the answers demand more than what church language can bring to them at that time. Can we get values from our churches? Of course we can, and we do. But what do I do? What what is the ethics of what's going on in corporate America right now or political America right now? How do I know what ethics is? Do we really have a republic, let alone a democracy? Or have we suddenly found ourselves the inheritors of a political oligarchy? What is oligarchy? What does it have to do with spirituality? Does anybody want to know? So where do I go if I can't get it in a pulpit? I go to a bookstore. Right. And now we have an addition to that. You know, it was one thing when my Roman Catholic mother married my Presbyterian father. But what if my Roman Catholic mother had married a Hindu? (laughs) That couldn't happen. But, you know, it's in a sense— in a sense, isn't it interesting that that writing, which was your earliest call, calling perhaps, which you put away for a while, thinking that you had to put it away to be religious, um, has become more of a ministry, more of a kind of vital ministry in the world than you could ever have imagined. I tell myself that every morning. Yeah. I say to myself, how how did this happen? Yeah. I, I you know. Um, I was I was a high school English and history teacher, and I loved it. I mean, I liked the subjects, but but somehow you have to believe that that these things are not accidents, and that you, when you feel home with at home with yourself, that you might be in the right place, doing the right thing. So I'm not surprised uh, about at this moment in history about this phenomenal emergence of, um, of a literary uh, ministry in our churches. I'm very happy about it because, see, people are staying in their churches because they love their faith communities mm-hmm. and they do believe. But at the same time, they are making every effort to, to enhance a spirituality, to become spiritual people, in this in-between time. For some people who have left the churches, the spirituality of the bookshelf is the only thing that's left, and they are very spiritual people. But they can no longer look at the old answers and and believe that uh, their integrity demands that they accept those answers. We're all on a different point on the continuum. But the beauty of it is, we're on a continuum together, and we are trying. We, we have not dismissed religion, as you're pointing out. It's never been more important. It's never been a stronger subject. I want to kind of merge my last two questions. I, I wonder if, um, if the decline in numbers of women religious is, is, some, is, a, is a source of sadness for you. I wonder if you would reflect on... And maybe that's not maybe that's not a part no, of the answer. That's a great question. Yeah, yeah. No, well, no. Let, me, let me just let me ask you that. And and what I want to ask you, kind of think about with me as your kind of last words is, um, you know, what what are your sources of despair? What makes you despair right now when you look out at the world? And 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 where do you find your hope? Yeah. Well, um, 
Does the declining number of women religious make me sad? At one level, of course, yes. (laughs) These were the sisters and the large communities that raised me, and I will be forever grateful. I wouldn't be who I am without those women in my life. At the same time, it's interesting. The question about the numbers of religion is a capitalist question. (laughs) uh, How big is it? It's a capitalist answer to a Christian question. (laughs) Religious life is not a numbers game. There, There are in every single culture and in every great religious revelation, in every continent of the world, those figures who who embody the spiritual search and keep confronting the entire culture with the spiritual questions of the time. That can be one person or a million people or 100,000 people. It doesn't make any difference, but we all recognize them. Okay. We call them swamis and Sufis and priests and ministers and nuns. Um, they're there, and they have always been there, and they're always going to be there. Okay. So I... Is the old form where we had become a very strong, uh, a, a very large and strong labor force. You mean that monastic, had, the whole monastic network of yes, mm-hmm. had had raised um, these hospitals and colleges yeah. and schools, created a whole institutional culture and network yes. that that really led and bred the country. But now they're there. Right. Hospitals are mainstream. Mm-hmm. Colleges are mainstream. Schools for women are mainstream. That must mean then that we are called to something else. Mm-hmm. And that, that uh, may not need numbers or it's very possible, very possible, that this older form is indeed uh, declining while this newer form is emerging. Hmm. But is religious life going to go, and is our numbers its definition? No, it's not going to go, and numbers will not determine its effectiveness. Hmm. Okay. I think that's your last word. I think that's wonderful. Um, Thanks. Krista, you are you came so well prepared. <laughs> I can't thank you. And I, well, I don't want any, I mean, forgive me for this, but I would be disappointed if it hadn't been you and you hadn't been that good. Well, because you're asking for a lot of time, which I'm I know, happy to give. I know. But I had a reporter walk in and ask me what questions I should ask. Oh, no, them. and I, I know this is a lot of time for you. I was stunned that we got you, but we will well, make you proud. It was because it was you. Okay. Well, I said, you. who? <laughs> and, and Sister Maureen, I said, I know her. And Maureen said, that's right. She said that she, and, yes, I said, I remember very oh, well. She's good. Well, I'll go. Well, we'll send you this. We'll let you know what's going on. And uh, I'm Thanks. just so grateful for your time. Oh, one, tell me, do you want me to refer to you as Sister Joan Chittister? How do you do? You do whatever you think okay. is professionally best All for right. the series. Okay. 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 I really mean that. Right. I'm very, very comfortable, Krista. Okay. And uh, it's. I I always figure this way. Um, I should not be giving myself the title sister. If anybody ever noticed that I was, that would be nice. <laughs> okay. <laughs>